Welcome back, Corey. Thanks for having me. This is number three. I am now the official most recurred guest on Bookworm. <laughs> That's true. Although I think we're going to have to take that title from you because uh, I don't think you're going to be a guest anymore. Uh, well, I'll take this opportunity to announce to the world that Corey is going to be the new Bookworm co-host. I've yeah. uh, been really happy with the conversations that we've had. And uh, as I told Corey, you know, I was really looking for somebody that we had, I, I had good chemistry with and, and we could develop that camaraderie that made uh, Bookworm special over uh, 186 episodes or 185, whatever, with, uh, with Joe. And uh, right from the beginning, you know, we started having some great conversations. So I'm excited to have you join the podcast officially, Corey, and excited about where Bookworm is going to go next. Well, I was I was excited when you asked, and I was excited when I got even the opportunity to guest on it because, I mean, I'd listened to Bookworm for a long time, and I just wanted to, you know, just get to know you better and get to know Joe better. It's funny because we've talked I've talked about this before, but you you have these people in your ear, right, and you're listening to them, and you feel like you have this relationship with them, but you don't really have a relationship with them. What you have <laughs> is you have a tiny little speck into their into their mind, and uh, no, I'm just grateful. I mean, this is it's a ton of fun to to read the books. It's a ton of fun to talk to, talk with you about them. And it's a ton of fun to, to learn, you know, about life and about, you know, learn together, I guess, with, if you will, learning community as we'll get to later on in our book today. So thanks, Mike. The whole point of that is thanks for trusting me and thanks for having me. And I look forward to thousand more episodes if you want to do that. <laughs> hey, I'll keep reading books as long as, as long as your game. Yep. Yeah, you kind of hit on something that's important and one of the reasons that I really like podcasting in particular and why I uh, really love Bookworm specifically is you when you listen to a, a podcast, you, f you feel like you have a seat at the table. And so for a long time, I was listening to podcasts by my internet heroes is the term that I, I used. And uh, you do that long enough and you just keep growing, you keep developing your skills and eventually you get a chance to contribute. And so I feel kind of honored that I have people who look up to me in, in that that sense. Um, and so I, I love the Bookworm podcast. I, I love the growth that comes from reading these books. And if I can help facilitate that in anybody else's life, I'm going to do that as long as I possibly can. <laughs> well, and, and one of the things I want to say is, um, I mean, I, I don't want to put put too much of a spotlight on you because I know your personality, I know your style, but it's, I mean, it's truly that situation where you listen to it and you think, how could I do that? Like, how could I get there? How could I do something similar to that? And you feel at times like it's daunting. It's like, oh, I can't, like, there's no way I could do that. But like, it's truly one of those, start playing around with it, start networking with people, start talking with people. And, and it's funny how I didn't expect this conversation to happen, but how much this conversation ties into the book that we're going to read today is you do these little prototypes and you do these little like smaller experiments. And it's interesting the way things sometimes unfold, like not always, but the way things mm -hmm. sometimes unfold. So, um, yes, I would say to say that you are one of my podcasting heroes. That's, that's very <laughs> true. Oh, I mean, I listened to you on focus. I listened to you here and it was like, Oh, how could I do similar thing to what, to what Mike does? And now you just invited me to do that long-term on bookworm. So, uh, I'm pretty, pretty jazzed about it. So thank you very much. <laughs> well, I I've shared this. Uh, I think I actually shared this in the relay FM spotlight. Cause I got to do that recently with Kathy Campbell that, um, I mentioned, you know, the internet heroes thing. I remember specifically, I was walking the streets of my neighborhood one night with my wife and just kind of like dreaming and was like, wouldn't it be awesome if someday I had a podcast on Relay FM? You know, what if I could podcast with 
David Sparks. And then he was listening to Bookworm and he started sending me these encouraging notes every once in a while via email. And that eventually led to me interviewing him for the uh, productivity show back when I was doing that. And the relationship was built from there. But I've had people who have done that for me. So I feel an obligation to pay that forward. And I try to do that to the best of my ability. Probably not as great as I I could be, but I'm doing my best. <laughs> yeah. Can I distract us for one more second? Because I have to get your opinion on this. So the hot news right now, right? And nobody's really talking about it from the productivity side. So who am I going to talk to? I'm going to talk to the faith-based productivity guy, right? Okay. Uh, so Apple Vision Pro, do you think it has any chance in the first couple months, in the first six months, year, whatever it is, to be an actual legitimate productivity tool? Mm. And I biased, I biased my question in the way I asked it. I know I did. Well, it's hard to say with the definition, without having a definition of a legitimate productivity tool. Like what do you, because I think it will be a, a helpful productivity tool. Uh, just like it's helpful to have your home office to eliminate distractions. You strap that thing on your face and if you can do your work at the same level as you normally would on a computer and a monitor, that could be a big focus and productivity boon just by, you know, I have this thing that I'm looking at and, and nothing else. I think uh, over the first several months, there's not going to be very many of them. I feel like the initial apps for them are going to be not great. <laughs> if you're just using uh, Apple's apps, then which is totally a legitimate way to, to be productive, you know, calendar reminders, pages, things like that then you could probably do quite a bit there. But I think the, the third-party support is really where it's going to take off for people like me. And just frankly, I have zero interest in that product. <laughs> okay, okay. See, I'm different than that, but okay, go ahead. Uh, that, that's basically it. Like, I think it will actually be a, a big thing over time. $3,500 is way too much for anybody but a raving early adopter to, to uh, go buy. Uh, but over time, I think it, the price is going to come down, and it's going to it's going to find its its place. You know, the the Apple Watch didn't know what it was at first either. Remember the the digital touch thing that was part of the the three main features mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. nobody I think ever used. <laughs> yep, I agree. So, but this I think is going to be bigger, a lot bigger than the uh, the Apple Watch. Uh, I think it is going to revolutionize the the VR headset game. It's going to cause things like uh, the Oculus to to uh, improve dramatically, but uh, I think it's going to be several years before this is, you know, part of the, the normal repertoire for knowledge workers or anything like that. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I mean the, the $3,500 starting price tag is a, is a really big mountain to climb because yep. I mean, what I would love is I would love to have the book in the space and then the mind map in the space and be able to like be doing that in a more native fashion. But when I think about the fact that I can do that with a computer right now, right? Like if I put the book on the, I mean, I don't, I don't read paper, right? So if I put the book on the left half of the screen, I put the mind map on the right half of the, half of the screen, I can do that right now. And I have a tool that costs way less and does way more. And it's like, it, it just isn't there yet. But I think there is an opportunity there. So cool. Thanks. I just wanted to hear your opinion on that. Well, actually, I got one more thing to add here. You mentioned, you know, the, the book and the mind, mind node uh, side by side, like that's kind of interesting, but um, I actually just 
got a chance to speak with Marianne Wolf, the author of Reader Come Home, for okay. the Focus podcast. So by the time this one comes out, that one should be available, and I'll put a link to that one in the uh, the show notes. But um, Marianne Wolf is a uh, she's done a whole bunch of research on like the science of reading and and how digital devices change the way that we read and makes the case for reading the analog books. So two big things came from reading Reader Came Home. One, David started reading analog books again. But the second thing and the bigger revelation for uh, the bookworm audience is that I am now reading fiction. (laughs) No. What? Okay. Did you start one? Like, what are you reading right now? I did. Uh, I picked up. So when I read that book, she was talking about the benefits of reading fiction and the empathy that can be. Uh, grown through through that process. And I was like, okay, this makes sense. Uh, I'm going to start doing this. And I had no idea where to start for fiction books. I'm not going to just like go to Amazon and look at the top lists. So I went and listened to the Upgradies and Jason Snell had his list of books from there. And the one that struck me from there was The Mountain in the Sea by Ray Naylor. Okay. So I just started that one. I'm like a couple of chapters in and, uh, I guess it's it's too early to say like I am now a fiction reader, but I am currently reading fiction. <laughs> we'll see if it sticks. Nice. So in your in the community in the faith based productivity community, um, there was the post about somebody said, okay, nonfiction books raise your floor, fiction books raise your ceiling, and I don't know how I feel about that yet. Like I'm still processing through that. But what I'll tell you is that was a comment that made that's made me think about it multiple times. Right? I was like, huh, how do I feel about that? Like. It, it hits that creativity aspect. It hits that imagination aspect. It hits those things that makes me think somewhat outside of the box. And then my, my nonfiction books bring my base level up to, you know, cognitive knowledge and connections and, and things. So I, I, I like that idea. I just have to think about it a little bit more, but okay. I'm glad, I'm glad <laughs> to see you're reading fiction now. Congratulations. Yeah. Uh, still primarily reading nonfiction, but fiction is fun. Turns out. <laughs> Tur- turns out now. Maybe one of my action items, even though it has nothing to do with this book, should be try to read a book on paper. <laughs> Absolutely, it should. And see how I see how it's different in this experiment. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, let's do uh, action items here. So I've got three. I'll go through mine quickly. So the ad side quest to my day. Uh, this has been successful, but uh, the making it a formal process has been unsuccessful. I'm not documenting this in any way, but I'm giving myself permission to just noodle on things. And if something opens up a loop, like it's okay to disengage from this thing that I was going to do for a little bit to go do this other thing. Those are the side quests. And I can still, because I time block my my day, I can still come back and do the the big stuff that really needs to get done. Um, one of these things was the, the whiteboarding session that I shared with you. I'll mention more about that in a little bit. So there's an open loop for y'all. Uh, the other thing I, I had from this was to update my wheel of life with the new categories from Ali's uh, Feel Good Productivity book, and that was on page 247. I did this. Uh, let me pull up. What I did when I uh, did this was I, I brought that stuff, obviously, into my uh, personal retreat template inside of Obsidian. Basically, I didn't use his categories exactly. I modified them a little bit, and I but I do now have nine different categories. Okay, so here, here's what I landed on. Spirit, mind, and body, those are the first three, and that's kind of a group. 
And then friends, family, and significant other. That's another group. And then career slash work, mission, and money were the, the last group. And then I modified the template. So I've got those nine different areas and give those areas a score. Got the wheel of life uh, graphic inside of the the inside of the template using the polar area chart. Um, I, I will mention, you know, I've got a whole YouTube video on how I do my personal retreat process in Obsidian. If people are interested in the specifics of that, go check that out because uh, we could spend a lot of time talking about that. And that's not the point of today's episode. Um, the last thing that I did was I updated my eulogy. I had actually done this previously. So I went back, I looked at it, I changed a couple of things. Uh, want me to read it to you? I do. I do. Can I ask a question before we get to the eulogy? Yeah. Or can make, I guess it's a statement. I like the fact that you separated career work from money because I think <laughs> yeah. that's an important one to separate because not everything we do for career and work is directly tied to the fact that we're going to receive some significant financial gain or that it even is part of our, our money. I like the fact that you separated those two in, in your wheel of life. So that's, that's interesting. And then, yeah, let's hear the eulogy. <laughs> All right. So this is going to be weird. Mike Schmidt's reading his own eulogy, but do you want me go. to read it? Do you want to send it to me and I'll read it to you? <laughs> uh, no, that's okay. Okay. Um, I'll do it. Mike Schmitz was a loving husband to his wife, Rachel, and an ever-present father to Toby, Joshua, Jonathan, Malachi, and Adelaide. His family was his first ministry, and he always made sure they were his top priority. He frequently said no to work and business opportunities to spend quality time and go on adventures with the people that he valued the most. Mike was also a committed member of his church, and when he wasn't spending time with his family, he could often be found serving there. He believed that God had blessed him richly, and he gave generously of his time and treasure to those who had need. He invested heavily in others and did his best to help them reach their full potential. Mike's life was driven by a desire to be a good steward of what was entrusted to him by God. He desired to inspire, encourage, and teach others to, to connect to their calling, discover their destiny, and live a life they were created for. Everything he did was filtered through his life theme, and he helped others to accept responsibility, gain clarity, and take action in living a purpose-driven and meaningful life. He helped countless people find their why, multiply their time and talent, and leave a bigger dent in the universe. He was an entrepreneur who loved building businesses and making art. Before he died, he wrote several New York Times best-selling books and gave away over $10 million. <laughs> nice. Obviously, this is aspirational. <laughs> he That's taught his good. kids to be lifelong learners and to discover their own creativity. They have all followed in his footsteps as creative entrepreneurs who live life on their own terms. That's awesome. Like, I want to dissect it, but we don't have time. Like, we're not allowed to take the time to dissect it, but I want to, I want to dissect it. It's also intriguing to me how close it ties into a topic we're going to talk about today in terms of the life view. Yep. Um, you know, like, that's, that's awesome. So that was a big help for you as you thought about this book. I'm sure it was. Yeah, yeah. I like, uh, like that action item a lot. Uh, you had one action item. How'd you do? I did. So my action item was to practice the 10-10-10. So 10-10-10 from... Uh, Ali Abdal's book was, um, is this going to matter in the next 10 minutes? Is it going to matter in the next 10, I think, weeks? And is it going to matter in the next 10 uh, years? And I've practiced that uh, once or twice throughout uh, throughout some important decisions that have come up. And what I'll tell you is that it's a good frame. So I liked the frame that it gave me because there were certain things where I legitimately said, nope for me, this is not going to matter in the next 10 weeks. And it's not even going to matter. You know, it's not gonna matter in the next 10 years. It's not even gonna matter in the next 10 weeks, but for the next 10 minutes, I should care about this. And it, and it, on some level, there was one particular thing that was annoying and kind of frustrating. 
that it helped me release. And it said, okay, this will matter for the next 10 minutes. It might matter for the next 10 days. And then it's gone. Like people are going to forget about it because, because they're going to move on. And I'm going to forget about it because I'm going to move on. And it allowed me to not stew on that, um, kind of negative thing and, and process it. I'm trying to use it a little bit more as I think about some future projects and some future work and kind of how those, those things work. Will it matter in the next 10 you know, 10 uh, minutes, 10 weeks, or minutes, days, weeks, years, however you want to couch the 10. I don't really uh, care about that. So can I give you an example of, of one that I'm thinking through it with right now? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, not a little bit of a, of a humble brag, but not intentionally. I just need to give you the context. So I, <laughs> I, so I got a grant, which is unique for CCU. So we're not, we're a teaching focused institution. So faculty members don't get a lot of individual grants. So I got a grant. Um, and the grant is to study how, STEM practitioners think about their worship and whether they connect the two, right? So if I'm an engineer, a computer scientist, a technologist, is that a form of worship? And what I'm trying to think about as I work through that project is, will will this matter in the next, you know, 10 minutes? Will this matter in the next 10 uh, years? Will this matter in the next 10 days, months, whatever it might be? And, um, and how do I make that study something? And how do I make the deliverables out of that study something that will matter in the next 10 years that will matter in the next hundred years. And it actually has a significant impact on the field or has a significant impact on the, on people's lives. And I've never thought about it that way before. Like most of the time, the way I've always thought about doing research before, like before I came to CCU was okay, like good grant funding. And can I get a publication out of this? And then does (laughs) it add to the field, right? Like those are the three, but it was never deep enough to where it actually, really had any like teeth to it, if you, if you will. And this, I think gives me a good frame for, no, I want this to mean something. Like if I'm going to take a bunch of my time and, and work on this, I want this to actually mean something. So it's been, it's been valuable in the couple instances that I've used it so far. Very cool. Can't wait to see what comes out of that grant. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited about it too. It's, it's a crazy amount of work, but I'm excited about it too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, ready to talk about today's book. I am. I'm excited about today's book. All right. So today's book was mentioned in the previous one, and then you had some experience with at least elements of this book, but the book is Designing Your Life by Bill Burnett and Dave Evans. Bill Burnett, if I'm remembering correctly, was the guy who designed the Apple mouse back in the day. So Uh, They're both designers, and they teach a Stanford class on this concept about applying design principles to your life, and life planning, I guess, would be the category here. The subtitle is How to Build a Well-Lived, Joyful Life, and so uh, this is kind of my jam, right right in my wheelhouse, and... uh, when you when I discovered that Bill Burnett was an ex Apple designer, I mean now you're checking all the boxes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I I want to drive home one point. So design principles, their specific bread and butter is design thinking, right? Which design thinking is a whole process of its own. If you don't know anything about design thinking, I mean you can read a lot on design think- thinking. It has a lot to do with human centered design. And Stanford, the D school at Stanford, has basically. Um, brought this field into not only fruition, but like they've they've made it a very important field in the world of of design in general. Yes, uh, that's a good good point. So um, this is kind of a oddball when you're thinking about design, the the application of this to lifestyle design. But um, that's the probably the most interesting application of it for me. Not too long ago, uh, Joe and I read Build by Tony Fidel, and that was interesting too. Um, about designing 
products specifically. But uh, this is this is kind of a, a condensation of the course that they teach. Um, there's a workbook that goes with it that I bought, but I did not go through everything in that workbook. Uh, the book itself has an introduction, 11 chapters, and a conclusion. There are no parts. There's lots of visuals. So it's a pretty easy, fast read, unless you are going to go through and do all of the exercises that they tell you to do, because there's a lot of reflection that needs to happen in order for that stuff to be successful. So I didn't do that. I will admit that right now. I didn't, I didn't either. Um, and I agree with you completely. Like the read was very, very easy. It was written on a very tangible level, easy to, easy to grasp. Um, but I mean, if you actually go and do these things, you can tell that they do this over a, you know, multiple week period, you know, in either a trimester or a semester or something along those lines. And then they took that idea and they put it into a book. Uh, a couple notes I want to I want to bring out here as we enter the book. It was uh, the copyright. The latest copyright of this book is 2016. There's actually another edition, or sorry, a refined edition of this called "Design Your New Work Life." And I actually think the title of "Design Your New Work Life," which is from 2021, makes a lot of sense, and I understand why they did that. So I'm glad we read "Design Your Life" because it's the like. It's the one that launched this whole movement and it launched this whole way of thinking about life design and applying design thinking to your life. And that's the one I wanted to start with. So I'm glad we started with this one. But I think, and I would suspect that if we looked at design your new work life, we'd understand why they made the changes that they did. Um, and we'll talk about that more as we roll through. Cool. You know, that kind of opens up another point I want to ask you about. I recently listened to the, uh, has got a great podcast called The Deep Life. And he interviewed Ali Abdal, and I had no idea that Ali Abdal and Kel Newport were buddies. <laughs> they, they seem, you know, just based on the surface with feel good productivity. And again, we talked through that whole book, and it's there's a lot of meat there. But um, on the surface, anyways, it, it kind of seems contradictory to Kel's reeling against the passion mindset. So it was kind of weird to hear them both on the same podcast. But one of the things that they kind of talked about was how influential Tim Ferriss has been with the four-hour work week in terms of lifestyle design. And I remember reading that book and not really liking it, but one of the points that Kel made was, you know, a lot of the criticism of Tim Ferriss has been unfair because people are attaching to the specifics and they're missing the forest through the trees. Really what he was talking about was this concept of lifestyle design before anybody else. Um, how do you feel about that? Do you agree? Um, I don't know. I don't know if I'm informed enough to, to know. I mean, that would make sense to me. Like, so he's thinking about what, how do I want to live? What life do I want to have? Well, I want to have a life that's bounded. And, and I guess the best way I can, I can show that I, I guess I do agree with this implicitly, um, is the fact that we homeschool, right? And I know you homeschool as well. We homeschool a large reason why is because it drops a lot of that fluff time out of the work, out of the school day. And the students can be more focused. So our, our kids can be more focused on that. And when they're not doing school, they can be do, uh, doing other creative and, and productive learning activities, but they're just not quote unquote school activities. They're, mm -hmm. they're other things. Um, and I think that's an intentional life design we have as parents towards their, you know, towards their education. It, I mean, it, 
it isn't as much um, or it's not primarily the driver of we hate public school and, you know, all that. It's more a matter of what is what would this look like if it was the ideal schooling situation? And I think Tim would be a similar way to think about that is like, yeah. well, what would my ideal day be? Like, what would my ideal work life be? Well, my early ideal work life would be four hours a week. You know, like <laughs> that way I can do other things and still learn and still be productive in other ways. Yeah, I guess I just never really realized uh how much alignment my perspective and uh thought processes are with the core of tim ferris's message because the way that it was packaged i remember it really kind of rubbed me the wrong way even the title the four hour work week uh he talked a lot about delegating and you know how he initially made his money was through like pharmaceuticals and just like that this is not it's it's fingernails on the chalkboard of my soul <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah but and, and I don't, I don't remember that one enough. Was it, um, was it very marketing heavy? Like, was it, um, in terms of that, that title was meant to be you know, a, an attention grabber and then the concepts were, were different. I don't remember the details of that book. To be honest, if I were trying to recall at this point, I'd probably do it injustice and it's okay. going to be biased based on my, <laughs> my feelings towards it. So I do remember he started the book by talking about how, when he get introduced to people at parties, he tells them he's a drug dealer. So like that's just kind of Tim Ferriss's personality, yeah. I guess, and his personality kind of rubs me the wrong way. But I, I got it. Hearing Cal and, and Ali talk about it, it's like, well, maybe actually, you know, I agree with a lot of what he said there, though. And that was kind of shocking to me. But yeah, but yeah. So I, I bring that up because you talked about how uh, this book being written 2016, kind of the beginning of this life de- lifestyle design. Um, I feel like it can be traced back a little bit further than that, and probably Tim Ferriss has an element of that. Uh, but I, I know you weren't saying that these guys invented it necessarily, but that's kind of where I think it became popular, or at least gained some credibility. It was, oh, look, Stanford's teaching a class on this now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and and it really, I mean, I, I see this all the time. It really drives out of a need where, you know, they, they throw statistics out in the very introduction of this book. And I mean, if you interact with young folks in terms of they're trying to figure out what to do with their life, I mean, it is it is crazy to figure out like what are you interested in i don't know well Mm -hmm. what do you like i don't know what don't you like uh things and it's like i mean you get these like insanely vague answers so it makes total sense where where these ideas came from and i'm sure people have been wrestling around with this stuff for a very 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 long time uh just not formalizing it yeah you mentioned the introduction so let's just talk about some of those statistics uh one of them is that only 27 percent of u.s college grads end up in careers related to their majors so why are we spending all that money to get the majors? Uh, I don't know. Let's not go there. <laughs> uh, I, we could go there and we could go there all day long, but we shouldn't right now. So let's, let's move forward. In disclaimer, America, I, disclaimer, I teach at a university. <laughs> yeah, I know you do. <laughs> uh, in America, two-thirds of workers are unhappy with their jobs, and then 15% actually hate their work. And I feel like I've heard these statistics before, but uh, they obviously drive home the point at the beginning that this kind of, I would call it the default life where you just do what people are telling you you should do. That isn't going to end up where you think it's going to end up. You need to be more intentional. In fact, in the senior university court, I'm talking about the, the PKM stack and there's the intentional life where you just consume the information and then that determines the quality and the quality of the ideas that you have and ultimately even the actions and tasks and projects that you do. And then I talk about the the intentional life is you start with the philosophy at the top and that works its way way down and it acts as a filter 
and it even allows you to curate, you know, what is the information that's going to be useful for me? I mean, that's kind of what we've been doing with Bookworm since the very beginning. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. let's just read more of these books. And then you get done with a book and then you're like, okay, so what open loops opened up and what questions do I have about something else? And then you go find something else to, that, that maybe is going to answer that, that question. And really they're saying like, that's the approach you want to take to designing your life. And they kind of reframe. I like this, you know, where you reframe, what do you want to do when you grow up? That then becomes who or what do you want to grow into? I've got this this saying. I used to add it at the end of all my my uh, videos. Uh, keep going and keep growing. Yep. So you just basically don't want to stop, and you want to constantly be trying to better yourself because when you better yourself, you're going to better your your situation. Kind of tied back to Cale Newport's. So good they can't ignore you. You know, you just develop your skills to the point where eventually the marketplace recognizes the value that you can bring. And you can make more money and you can do the things that you want to do. But it's not just you got to find the right situation and someone's got to open a door for you. Let's take ownership over this and let's design this life that we want to live ourselves. Yeah, this this whole section made me think um, about how different periods of time and different eras have changed. So if you think way back, you were born into what you were going to do. So I'm born into a lifestyle this is what we do, right? In our in our lifestyle, this is what we do. Then you get into a situation where, okay, maybe you're born into a family and this is what our family does. So what do I do? I do exactly what the family does because you know that's how, that's how we transition through. Then we get into a, um, a time period where it's like, well, I do what's in the region around me. So if I live in, you know, Appalachia or Appalachia and like we're coal miners, what do we do? We all coal mine, right? Because that's the industry that, that's in our area. And how this progression has come and we're now at the point where, we're not like just going out and looking for the thing we want to do. We're actually in an idea where we can actually figure out and design what we want to do. So we can go purely from creativity to actually doing, doing a thing. And I I think that transition, the book made me think back on that transition about how, I mean, honestly, how good we have it right now. Like I'm not born into the fact that I'm going to shovel hay for the rest of my life or bale hay for the rest of my life. And and that's, that's pretty awesome to me. Like I, I like that idea and, um, I like where they where they take us and where they kick us off from. Yeah. So should we jump into chapter one or anything else you want to talk about from the introduction? So the only thing I want to bring in the introduction is they they start this early and in my um I did a mind map again so you'll be proud of me nice right, but I did it I did a, a mind node mind map again and one of the things that I thought was fun about the mind map and I probably wouldn't have done this if I hadn't done the mind map was they they introduce these dysfunctional beliefs. And then, as Mike said a little bit a little bit ago, they reframe them. So they say dysfunctional belief, reframe, dysfunctional belief, reframe. And they do this throughout the book. And the reason why I say the mind map was effective is because you could pull a section of the mind map out that was just these dysfunctional beliefs and reframes and just these dysfunctional beliefs and reframes. I mean, there's over, there's probably 15 of them. There's probably 15 of these dysfunctional beliefs and then reframes. And I think that was a really interesting way to drive home some of the main points that they wanted to make. And I thought it was a very effective way to drive home some of the main points that they wanted to take. That's really the only other thing I have for, I guess the only, one other thing, I I just thought about it now. The, they have five designer mindsets. Mm -hmm. So the designer mindsets they introduce here are curiosity, bias to action, reframing, awareness, and then radical collaboration. And then the chapters in the book address those things. So they give more practical ideas on curiosity. They give more practical ideas on bias to action, um, more practical things on reframing. So um, again, I think they I think they do a fairly good job setting us up to where they're going to go in the book um, moving forward. Yeah, and those uh, those mindsets that they talk about, those are like natural 
but there's the outline for your sections, but they, mm-hmm. <laughs> they didn't do that. <laughs> exactly. Yep, exactly. All right. So chapter one is to start where you are. And I really like this, um, the, the whole concept of, of starting where you are. Uh, you can't just say, well, I want to be in a different situation. You have to prioritize progress, not perfection here. And uh, they talk about problem finding and problem solving. That's ultimately what leads to a well-designed life. And then they talk about this concept of gravity problems. So the problems that you choose to focus on are important. Gravity problems are really big. Like gravity is a problem, but you're not going to be able to solve that one. So gravity problems are problems that can't be solved. Gravity is always going to be there no matter how much you wish it wasn't. So focus on the things where you can actually move the needle. And I think that's interesting. But then the rest of this, where they talk about the life design assessment, and they've got the four different gauges of health, love, play, and work. That part, I actually didn't like a whole lot. I I agree. I agree. Yeah. I just got done with my action item on the wheel of life. And like, there's nine of them there. (laughs) But I like the, the idea that's attached to these, because they say, basically, you should take action on a gauge that's low. And I have an example of this that I'm willing to share from a wheel of life exercise from actually before COVID where uh, one of my lowest scores was social because I am actually, uh, I'm a podcaster and a creator and I'm always talking to a camera, but I'm not very extroverted in real life. (laughs) My idea of a good time is sitting at home on a Friday night next to the fireplace, reading a book. And my wife is the exact opposite she gets energy from being around people. So one of the things that we decided to do was kind of in conjunction with my low social wheel of life, because I realized that people are important, even though that's not how my personality is naturally, um, is naturally to go spend time with a bunch of people, um, had just read The Art of Gathering by Priya Parker. And uh, we decided that we were going to start hosting these small group uh, kibbutzes is what we call them based off of what Near Isle talked about, where they have a couple Families come over and the kids would go in the basement and they would seed kind of intentional discussion points with the adults. They'd share a meal, then they'd go to the living room and they'd they'd talk about things. So um, that's kind of what we decided to do. And we set that up. We bought new furniture for our living room so we could kind of facilitate these these conversations. Um, And it was really successful, at least until COVID hit and we had to (laughs) stop doing them. But it was all spurred by recognizing that this area, you know, day to day, it doesn't really bother me. Day to day, I just want to go chill. But in the long run, recognize that I do need to be sewing into these relationships and establishing these, these friendships with other people. That's important long term. So creating a systemic way to actually move the needle on, on that gauge. Yeah, Mike, I I agree with you completely. Like I like the idea of the dashboard because I think it's a good way to see where you are in the areas. What I didn't like was just the four because I thought there's an opportunity for you to do more there and there's an opportunity for you to do ones that are more relevant to your life, right? So mine, I'll, I'll be very quick about this because there's a, a bigger point I want to make in this ch- in this chapter. But like mine is um, just general health. So if I'm not moving and I don't even mean like hardcore exercising. If I'm not moving like outside doing something or if I'm not eating well, man, it impacts a lot of the rest of my life, right? So if I can if I can nail that that area on the dashboard, it seems like other things tend to go well uh, as well or it's actually really an, a reverse gauge 
when things aren't going well in other places, I notice it in those areas, right? Like I stop moving as much, I stop being outside as much, and I stop eating, you know, in a in a an appropriate way. But the the point I wanted to get it on this chapter is, man, the gravity problems I thought was so such an interesting concept and such an interesting idea. And this is an indication of where I think this book really adds value to me is there are these these core ideas that they pitch out here and these core concepts that they pitch out here that I think are so valuable. Gravity problems, I think, is one of them. So what I loved here is they say in the book, the only response to a gravity problem is acceptance. So like think about gravity. Like the only thing we can do in the world with gravity is accept it and design around it. Like we can't get rid of it. We can't make it go away. It's a law. It's a fundamental thing. It's always going to be there. And I've started to think about like, okay, in my personal life, in my professional life, in all these areas of my life, what are the gravity problems? What are the things Mm -hmm. that like, they're going to be there and I need to accept that, right? One of them being my kids are going to make noise, right? (laughs) Why? Because they're kids and they're young and like, they're just going to be loud. And that's a gravity problem. So what does that mean? I have to design around the fact that they're making noise. I can't really try to tell them, stop making noise. It's part of their nature. They, they, they have to make noise. So I have to, I have to design around that. And I, and I think that, uh, that idea really changed the way I think about a lot of things. So I liked that, um, that idea a lot. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, you're right. I, I do think that that's a great example of a gravity problem. Uh, but it's not an obvious gravity problem. I don't think I fall into this category, but I could see an alternate scenario where mom or dad is just saying like, kids, you got to knock it off and be quiet. And the fact that they're not like, they believe they have the potential to be quiet. And it's just like, they're choosing not to, you've basically taken the other approach is like, well, this is just, you know, kids are crazy. So I can't really change that, but I could see another another uh, alternate universe where someone is trying to, and they're, they're just getting frustrated. Um, and, cause you can probably influence a, it a little bit, but not, not a ton. And so yes. I think the, the takeaway is still this, the same principle Focus on the things where you can actually make a difference. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Agreed completely. All right. Building a compass is chapter two. And, uh, I like this concept a lot. Um, this kind of ties into something that we did not, tease out from the introduction, but they talk about how a well-designed life is one where who you are, what you believe, and what you do all align. And uh, that's really important. They talk about the, th- the two things that you need for your compass are a work view and a life view. Don't like that, <laughs> right? There, there's the work-life balance uh, myth in, <laughs> in uh-huh, action. Uh-huh. <laughs> Embedded there, yes. Yes, but I think I understand why they do that because most people are going to think in those two buckets. So uh, I think they would probably say, because they're saying these things have to align. That's the purpose of the compass. You're bringing these things together. Um, but I think it's it's more helpful personally to just destroy that limiting belief that there are these lines between work and life, especially now where there are so many people working from home. Those lines are are blurred. So you have to establish your own boundaries. And the sooner that you understand that and and take responsibility for that, you can exercise more influence in that, the more you're going to be able to actually uh, create an an atmosphere and an environment where you can actually do what you you need to do. But um, the the larger point here and the one that I really want to kind of talk about is the the true north idea of where you're going. And this, uh, I think, is, is genius. I love the idea of the compass. 
I actually have in one of my creativity talks, I talked about how you don't need a plan, you need a direction. And the visuals I use are the compass versus the blueprint. If you're trying to build something, design something, uh, and you try to get all of the pieces identified and all of the tasks broken down and create that plan, and this is when it's gonna get done, uh, humans are bad at that. And it's gonna take twice as long and it's gonna cost twice as much and you're gonna be frustrated the entire time. So don't focus on all of the things that you need to do. There's only two things you need to do, what you're doing right now and then everything else. (laughs) And so the compass can indicate this is the next step. And when you get done with the, the one thing, then you can focus on what is the next thing instead of scanning the entire horizon. Okay, I'm going to pick something now out of all of these uh, available options. That's the value of the compass. It tells you which way the next step is supposed to go. And I think that's a much better approach. Yeah, I mean, I I didn't feel as strongly about the life view, work view thing. I see what you're saying now, right? That it, it you know it separates those two, bifurcates those two uh, in a way that doesn't make sense. Did you connect with the life view in terms of the life theme stuff that you do? Like, was that a was that a connection you had there or... Did you see those two things as being a little bit different? Uh, Kind of. I mean, that's on the surface anyways with the label. It makes a lot of sense. Um, I think probably from a a philosophical point of view, there's alignment there. But how they go about it is very different than (laughs) what I do. uh, Because they're just kind of like, here's some blanks and fill in this stuff. And uh, like I literally just got done with the cohort where we walk people through this process, which is what I used, and I find that framework more helpful in ending up at something that is actually useful. And I get it, this is a book, this is not the class. Mm-hmm. So you sign up for the class or you go through one of the workshops because they actually have workshops where they'll walk people through this stuff. I have a, a absolute confidence that the person who is facilitating that workshop is helping you along this path more than they're able to do in the 200 pages or yes. so in, in this book. Um, however, just given the content of the book, like that is missing. Yeah, I I would agree. Um, I would agree. I I think the, the, one of the takeaways for me out of this chapter was the idea of coherency and like the fact that if these two things aren't aligned, if these two things aren't connected to each other, then you're going to notice a dissonance in your life and you're going to feel this friction or, or, or feel something. Um, I actually think it's very challenging to align these, um, and, and align them in a way that, that makes sense long term but i think that's part of their process as well as they're saying you'll never have it perfect you're going to continue to have to work on this life view work view whatever other views you have and and bring those two bring those things together in in coherency so uh, overall wasn't you know um i I thought this this set a good foundation in terms of setting setting the stage for where we're going next yeah agreed and in fact the next chapter is chapter three wayfinding and the wayfinding title fits perfectly with what they're talking about with building a compass. Uh, wayfinding is the ancient art of figuring out where you are going when you don't actually know your destination. <laughs> yep. Uh, there's two tools for wayfinding that they talk about, engagement and energy. Engagement is feeling excited, focused, or having a good time. Eh, I don't know if I like that definition, the having a good time piece at the end. But again, that probably is just my like off-the-cuff reaction. Same kind of, it's rooted in the same uh, same reaction and the is- the issue that I can't quite put my finger on when I when I pick up feel good productivity by Ali Abdel like just on the surface I feel like oh, I don't want to don't want to touch this because it's not always going to be fun it's you know it kind of 
I guess I'm I'm so connected to uh, uh, what what, Pal, what Cal talks about with like the passion mindset and how dangerous that is. That if there's even like a chance that that's going to be misinterpreted by somebody, I feel like this is dangerous. Stay away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But overall, I think uh, yeah, I think it's it's fine. You you do want to be engaged with things, uh, but they're not going to be the things that are always fun. They're going to be the things, honestly, that are are meaningful. And if you can connect that to your life theme is what I would call it, your personal mission statement. And, uh, that, that creates the the clarity to cut the things that don't, uh, don't hit the mark and then motivation to, to do the things that, that do. Um, so that's kind of how I interpreted this section on wayfinding. I kind of filled in the, the blanks here, but ultimately, uh, the engagement and the energy piece, this is something that we don't think a whole lot about, but this is really the thing that is going to allow us to do the things we want to do, or it's going to be holding us back. You can have the time to do something. You can have the thing on your calendar, but if you don't have the energy or you just are like, what's the point? <laughs> You're not going to show yep. up and do it unless you maybe got some external accountability, something like that. But it's the the gray matter, our, our, our brain. And they actually talk about that. Our brain accounts for 2% of our body mass, but it takes up 25% of our energy. So that's the thing we got to be protecting. Um, one of the uh, exercises they gave was this good times journal. And I don't think yes. I'm actually going to keep this, but I think this is a cool idea where you record when you're energized or when you're engaged. Uh, I think I'll try to add elements of that to my daily journaling in uh, Obsidian, but I'm not creating separate categories for this. I think this is just going to be under my journal entries, but it's going to be something that I'm going to try to pay attention to. Yeah, it's one of those you know it, you know it when you see it, or you know it when it happens, and you you make a note of that um, as you're going. Um, I, I thought the direction aspect of this was good. Um, I'm trying to figure out how to how to summarize this or how to, how to say this in a way that makes sense. So help me out, Mike, if I, if I mess up. So <laughs> if you play video games, in certain video games where you're navigating a world, there's like a fuzzy map in the bottom right-hand corner. And, and at times, you, know, you have your fuzzy map and, and it'll tell you like what direction you need to head in. And then you know you have a goal, but you have no idea what's in between these two places, right? Because the rest of the, the little cheat map, if you will, is, uh, is blacked out or grayed out or, or you can't see it. And this is what came into my head when I was reading this section. I was like, oh, it's like one of those <laughs> things where it's like, it's telling me which direction I need to travel to achieve this goal that I want. And I need to do that with my life too, is I need to say, okay, I need to travel in a certain direction. Well, the way they present this is what direction do I need to travel in? I need to travel in the direction of things that engage me, of things that give me energy. And if I do that and I'm aligned with the overall goal or the compass is the way they describe it. And that's, this is where I started to go, ah, I don't know if I like compass. Like, I don't know if compass sits mm. with me correctly. Um, you know, it, 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 something felt wrong about it. I don't have a good example or a good like alternative to it, but compass doesn't feel right um, to me. Another aspect that stood out of, of this chapter to me was, you know, the, they make a quote that flow is play for grownups, right? So this idea of, <laughs> yeah. of um, you know, flow where you're so engaged with that activity that you basically like go into a trance and you forget about the world. And next thing you know, like, you know, three hours have passed and you have no idea what's happening. Um, like, I, I really like that that concept and, and using that to identify like what are the areas where, man, I had no idea I liked this as much as I did. But like, I just lost three hours of my day because I was so focused and so engaged in that activity. And then I think it's, it's valuable to think about because they call this out in the book where that might be an activity that actually drains your energy. So now mm -hmm. we need to talk about whether or not that's, a, that's an energy giving thing or that's a, 
energy draining thing. And if it's energy draining, it's not terrible. It's just you can't have too many of those or else you get to the end of the day and you're completely completely wiped and then you, you they don't say it, but you end up leading to burnout. Uh, so I, I liked the way all of this fit together. I like the good time journal, actually. Um, I'm a little bit more... Um, in terms of, I think that would be a good section of the notebook and just writing stuff down. This is the activity. This is why it engaged me. This is why it, um, it gave me energy. So those were the good parts of this chapter. Where the chapter started to get me um, and I started to notice this transition is things start to shift more towards work in this chapter. So, yeah. it, you know, the book's called Design Your Life, but if you look at the dysfunctional belief, work is supposed to be enjoyable. Right. Um, so um, if you look at different things that they there's another section that I'm blanking on right now. Oh, but work is fun when you're actually learning, uh, leaning into your strengths and deeply engaged and energized. So here we immediately st start to take a shift towards work, which we hadn't done up until now as much, um, if, if you will, in the book. And I thought, huh, that's that's really interesting. And this is why I said their their new version of the book. They actually introduced work into the into the title. And I think that that makes um, a lot of sense. I did too. I saw that uh, show up in my Amazon recommendations, but I, I didn't pick that one up yet. Um, let me go back to the, uh, the mini map that you were talking about, because they say something specifically in this chapter of follow the energy. And uh, the framing with this is actually very similar to the framing that I use in the Life Theme cohort. One of the first things I ask people to do week one is identify your moments of impact, I call them, but basically what have you done that really made you come alive? And I think that's actually really great advice. And the visual I get for this, and I apologize, I know you mentioned Zelda last time, but not really played it, but that's the perfect analogy for yep. this because in Zelda, the they have these shrines and you'll be like running through the map and all of a sudden you'll hear this boop, 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 which means that there's a shrine nearby. Okay. Okay. And then the minute that you hear that, you're like, oh, I got to go find the shrine. So then you start moving in the direction of the shrine and it gets faster, like as you get closer and then you make a wrong turn and it starts to get slower. You're like, oh, it's kind of like if you're a kid, you know, I find hide something in the room. You get warmer, get warmer. Oh, you're getting colder. Yeah. That is the same principle. And I feel like energy is the perfect thing to use for that because you can feel it. You know when you're energized, you know when you're not. And sometimes you just got to have the discipline and, and do the hard thing and, and push through. But ultimately, long-term, that's not going to be enough. Now, there are ways to create the energy. You know What you do doesn't even necessarily need to change. It could just be your perspective and understanding and connecting to a reason for doing the things. But I like that follow the energy idea. And that actually gets into the next chapter. Anything else you want to talk about from chapter three before we go there? So I know you're you're developing this creator career and everything's going you know, pretty well in there and all that stuff. But I just thought of the technology idea that is going to revolutionize you and I. So we need to start a company that's an AI company and it's like the humane pin, right? You clip it on there <laughs> and as you walk around and, it, and engagement and energy is happening, it starts beeping faster and faster. And you're like, I need to follow that engagement. I need to follow. Think about it. We'd be we'd be billionaires, Mike. We'd be billionaires. That that might not be good. You know, I could walk into a room. To, and and it might it might stop beeping altogether. As <laughs> People it, it can just use goes, that as an indication. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! All right. So chapter four is getting unstuck, and uh, the reason that this ties so nicely. I mean, there's there's a lot that we could talk about in this chapter, but specifically, they talk about creating three mind maps for engagement, energy, and flow. 
And this is one of the action items I jotted down from this. I actually want to do this. Now they talk about mind mapping here a little bit and they say, you know, start in the middle with one of these engagement, energy or flow, then go out a level, then go out another level. They do a really poor job of explaining mind mapping. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but they, that is absolutely that is from the perspective of someone who actually like made a course on it for <laughs> this sweet setup back in the day. So uh, that's I have more experience with this concept than uh, the average person. I probably got over a thousand mind maps in in mind node currently. Like I, I really believe in the power of visual thinking and mind mapping specifically. I think it's a really powerful tool for getting unstuck. And that kind of ties into the whole design thinking process. You know, there's more ideas, you have more possibilities. And uh, one of the things that they said here, which I thought was pretty brilliant, quantity has a quality all of its own. When you have a bunch of options, then you can start to see which ones really are, uh, are potentially good ones. And never choose your first solution to any problem. I mean, that's not necessarily an action item, but it's a great life rule. Yeah, I, I'm I work with my engineering students all the time on this, right? Because they'll get so fixated on the first thing they think of. And I'm like, no, create more ideas, create more ideas. And they're like, but mm -hmm. the one I have is awesome. And I'm like, no, it, it's an idea. We have no idea if it's awesome yet. That's a whole other stage of the process. So yes, I agree with you completely. Yeah, you have no idea how good things are at the beginning. In fact, in the, the uh, senior university cohort, I, I kind of talk about that with ideas specifically. Like you don't know what they are when you capture them. You got to give it some time. You got to disconnect from it in the moment because the minute that you have an idea, you think it's the best thing you ever you ever thought of. And then the next day you're like, oh, this is complete garbage. And the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So then, you know, the, the very best of the things that you captured, those I bring into Obsidian and then I have a whole separate process for developing those. And I, I talk about that as like a greenhouse for your ideas because you plant these seeds and then you let them develop. You provide the right conditions, but you don't know what those seeds are when you plant them. And that resonates with me because I do not have a green thumb. I'm definitely not a master gardener. Like you show me a seed, I have no idea what it is. Uh, now, other people, maybe that doesn't resonate so much because they, they understand the, the whole principle. They're, they're, they're better farmers than I am. But uh, I think that that is true with ideas. You can't judge it by it, its uh, initial impressions. You got to give it some time and then you start to see what you've really got to work with. Yeah, I, I like the idea um, section here because I'm... I agree, right? In terms of um, one of the enemies of creativity is judgment and the fact that we get these ideas and we start to immediately judge them. And it's like, hold off, just make the ideas first. We'll have a whole section where we judge them later, you know, like, and, yep. and I think that's a good philosophy to live by. Um, what I thought was, uh, was strange here is, so they introduce ideas and they don't say the word brainstorming here. At least I don't remember them saying the word brainstorming here, but then there's a whole nother section on brainstorming later. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they separated those or that they didn't do more on this early they did it later in the book i thought was strange so that was a that was something that caught my caught me you know in kind of a strange place one of the things i loved about this chapter was the anchor problems and then they distinguish between these gravity problems and the anchor problems so an anchor problem right they say it's a real problem it's just a really really hard one it's actionable uh, but we've been stuck on it so long, often it seems insurmountable. And I really <laughs> like this idea and how they separate these two things. Okay, there are these gravity problems where we kind of just have to go like, this is the reality and what are we going to do about it? And then we go, there's these anchor problems and wow, we've been stuck on this so long that I don't know if there's any way we could ever solve this problem. But what it does is it helps you reframe it, you know, oh, let's explore new possibilities. Let's, let's challenge the way we've currently been approaching this. And what I started to do at least informally in my in my head, is I started to actually categorize things in my life and say, all right, this is gravity. 
this is anchor, this is gravity, this is anchor. And it was a really good way. This is one of those core concepts I was talking about before. This was a really good way for me to think about kind of how how I should see the world or how I could see the world, not should, I guess how I could see the world in, in, in different ways and how that helps me, you know, um, process through things. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I, I mean, I'm not going to clarify the problems into the different categories in any sort of formal way, but I, I think that is, uh, that is interesting and, and important to recognize the, the subtle difference there. I agree. I like the anchor problems a lot. So chapter five is design your life. And uh, this is where we get introduced to the concept of the Odyssey plan, which is a plan for your the next five years of your life. Now, there's three different versions of the Odyssey plan that they say you're supposed to make. Or is an Odyssey plan all three of these things side by side? I was a little confused by that. Uh, so, yes, they would say it's an they would say um, the Odyssey plan is three side by side and you do life one, life two, and life three. So okay. life one is the thing that you're doing or the plan that you're currently on. Life two is the thing that you would do if uh, one was suddenly gone. So for some reason, plan one went out the window, what would we do? And then life three is basically the the world is your oyster, You know, open it up, whatever you wanna do, uh, resources are unlimited. What would that, what would that plan look like? This is the one I'm, uh, this is the part of this book that I'm most familiar with. Cause I run my students through this, um, this design challenge. I usually run it through them in their first year here and I run it through them in their last year here. And I like to mm. let them look at them and say like, okay, look how different your five-year plans might be. <laughs> and then what, what's happened in those, um, those five-year plans. Um, so I resonated with this section a lot, but because I've done it before, you know, and I, and I've seen the effect it has on students. And, um, and people, I guess, in general, because I've done it with not just students. But one of the really cool things that you get out of this is how difficult it is for people to think beyond uh, two years. It's yeah. actually really, really interesting because the first like the first two years, they usually do fine. But then when they start to get like three or three or four or five, I mean, they just I mean, they're just they freeze and they're like, ah, I don't know what I want to do in four years. I don't know where I'm going to be in four years or what I, what goals I want to achieve. And I was like, okay, that's what the activity is for you then. Like that's what you need it. You need it to be. So I resonate a lot with this because I've seen it work very effectively with, with folks. So when you do this, do you follow the format that they have in the book, which is there's a visual or graphic timeline. There's a title for each option uh, in the form of a six word headline. And then there are questions that this alternative is asking in the dashboard where you gauge the resources, the likability, the confidence and the coherence. Yes. So I follow that. But what I focus on more is I focus on more the, the visual graphic in the timeline and then the questions that, that come up out of this, uh, this timeline. I find that the, the students and even I don't really resonate as much with making the six word headline. I mean, it's fine, but you don't get as much out of that one. And then the dashboard, I think the dashboard, the way they set it out where it goes, resources, likability, confidence, and, and coherence, those those are an okay starting place. But this is where I think the individual can change that. Um, the one that I think is the most value, valuable out of that, um, or I guess the two that would be the most valuable, is what resources do I have? Like how... how you know, because you get into some like likelihood on that one is like, if I have a ton of these resources, okay, that's much more likely. Mm -hmm. um, and, and if I don't have any of the resources, now you start to ask questions of how do I get those resources? 
but then the confidence side of it too, right? So you tie into the confidence side because a lot of times students can develop these five-year plans and they're really effective or they're really like promising, if you will. But man, they have zero confidence that they're ever going to do it. They have zero confidence <laughs> that would ever, you know, come to come to fruition. And you go, okay, why? Like, what is what is the thing? So what these do, these one, two, three, four, you know, visual graphic title questions dashboard, they basically help people and Later on in a chapter, they're going to talk about the team that you go through this designing your life process with. They really help other people ask a bunch of really interesting questions and say, oh, I noticed that you rated this resource really, really low. What are you going to do about that? How is that going to, you know, how, how are you going to overcome that? Or you rated this really, really high. You know, where do you get that resource from and how could I get, you know, um, how could I access some more of that resource or whatever it, it might be? So, yeah, I, I like this a lot, this section. Nice. Uh, I did not do this, but I feel like I've done elements of what the Odyssey plan is trying to accomplish before. Um, maybe because you've gone through a bunch of them, you can kind of tell me in my mind, I'm, I'm thinking the average person is going to go through this and they have no trouble thinking about the thing that they're currently doing. The thing you do, if the thing were suddenly gone, now you're starting to open the door to some additional possibilities, some things that you didn't know that were already adjacent. And then the last one is really designed to get you to think bigger, I can, I can probably see how before this, I'm so focused in on just like, I'm following this track. And now I start to look around and I see the other options. And I would guess that most people are going to end up somewhere between the thing they do if they were suddenly gone and the thing that they would do if they had no limitations. And then that goes into the prototyping thing in the next chapter. But yeah, I, I can't. I can't say that that's where they land. Um, I don't think there is a place where most people land. Um, some okay. people have that path that um, the thing you do path, the first one, so clearly planned out, and they're just on a trajectory, and they know that's what they want to do, and they're. I mean, they've got it. They've got it settled. Uh, that they actually have a lot of trouble with the other two, and yeah. and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in a in a very good way. Like they are the exception to the rule in terms of they've got it figured out. Then there's other ones that need the brainstorming step that comes in step two, and then they need the freedom to really, really open up in step three, because that's really what step three is doing. Step three is saying, you put all these limitations on this when you're doing this. Well, I can't, I can't, I can't. No, no, you can. Like, just imagine that you can. You, like, there, there are no limitations. And they need those two to open up the brainstorm. And then where I think the value comes in, and they don't really talk about it, uh, in, in the book where I think the value really comes in is I say, okay, look at those three plans. What's the plan you want to do? Uh, Take the yeah. elements of all three plans and put them in the plan that at this moment, it's a snapshot in time, but at this moment, what's the one you want to do? And and what's really fun is you'll get students who will come out and they'll be like, man, I didn't realize how much I like to travel because I put travel in all three of these plans. So therefore in the one, whatever I'm going to do, you know, long-term travel has to be a part of that. Like I have to either have enough vacation time that I can travel or I have to have a job that lets me travel a lot. And, and it's like the, the smushing of those three together and then coming out on the other side is really where I see, I see the value in, uh, in, in this process for with the way I've used it, um, in, in practice. And I'm guessing that the next step, um, is going to be the chapter six and that's going to be applicable no matter which path they go down. Correct. Yes. Yes, okay. absolutely. Cool. So let's go there then. Uh, chapter six is prototyping. Uh, I know you had mentioned at the beginning, this was one of the, the big ideas and, uh, uh, maybe you can introduce this one. I'll just real briefly. Prototyping is is kind of the the 
crappy first version of something. It's the the first step, but it's it's never designed to be the the final product. It's sort of like a test when you're starting this, and um, that's really the important first step to start going down one of these paths, especially if it's one of those ones that you really haven't given yourself permission to consider in uh, previously. I'm guessing. Yeah. So it, so if we were gonna section this book into parts, this is where we switch from curiosity into bias to action. So the, the point of this is they say, well, as a designer, right? Um, and they and they even, you know, they write this in the book, building is thinking, right? And, and I've heard this in different forms from a writing standpoint that writing is thinking. So don't think that I think first and then I write the stuff or I think first and then I create. As I'm creating it, I'm actually thinking through and, and making it better and refining it. Um, well, that's, that's the same idea. It's this bias to action and we're going to move towards action. Now, what I'll tell you is in my experience running these, um, through these frameworks and working through these ideas with folks, this is the hardest part is them coming to an idea of like, okay, what is a prototype that actually makes sense for the <laughs> thing I want to explore? And what we always have to back people into is we have to say, what do you want to learn? Okay. As what do you want to learn directly ties into what you explore? So if you want to learn what it might be like to move from, I don't know, finance to healthcare, right? Like, so, okay, let's think about what, what's a prototype look like that's going to help you understand the difference between the, the work context of finance and the work context of healthcare. So, so it's like, it, it, this actually gets really, really hard. And this is where having somebody who's done this, um, a few times before, or at least can give you really good and honest feedback, uh, will help. So they talk about different ways to prototype and they really only throw out two here. They throw out prototype conversations and prototype experiences. So prototype conversations are basically interviews. You're doing interviews to glean as much wisdom as you can from other people about what they do and why they do it and how they do it in the context that they're doing it in. Uh, this is one of my action items, right? So we'll get to we'll get to it to the end, but I want to do more prototype conversations around um, the intersection of faith and technology. And, and what does that look like? And where are people working in it right now? And where's the field growing? And how is it growing? But then the, these prototype experiences, um, they call out, you know, the, the one person in the book does like three internships, right? And he figures out a way to smush those three internships together. Well, that would be a prototype experience. So let's say I wanted to be a content creator, right? Instead of me launching something like a podcast and doing all the background work to get it all set up and get all the feeds set up, I would try to find somebody, like try to work network, which we'll get to later. I'll try to network my way into, into this and say, hey, Mike, could I come on your show once? <laughs> and just figure out what it's like to be a podcaster. Or I would say, hey, Mike, you make podcasts all the time. Could I? Could we sit down and make a fake podcast together so I can get the experience of what it would be like to make one? And these two things allow us to really learn, but they lower the stakes significantly. We don't, up, yeah. you know, we don't cause an upheaval in our life. You know, we don't, you know, go off the deep end with it, but we really get some good tangible feedback. But I would say this is one of the hardest pieces um, of this process is because making good ones, uh, is sorry, making good prototypes is challenging. And I think the best advice they give here is I'm trying to figure out where they give it, but they talk about, um, dropping the prototype down to learn one thing from the prototype. Mm -hmm. So whatever you're going to try to do, just try to learn one thing. Don't try to learn 10 things that makes it too hard. Figure out what the minimum viable prototype is, if you will. So if you know, if y'all know the startup world, MVP, like the minimum viable prototype to learn that one thing. Yeah. Uh, so real quickly on the the uh, podcast topic that you you mentioned, I feel like there's an important distinction here. I and mean, this is kind of based on their life design interview thing. 
Um, if you go into it, and I'm not saying that you did this, but uh, let's say I've got this podcast, right? If you were to approach me and be like, hey, can I be a guest on your show? And I don't know who you are. We've never had any interaction before. I'm like, no, because I'm going to protect my podcast. It's my baby. Yes. Yes. <laughs> now, you and I had previous conversations on your podcast. So I knew at least for the first one when I was like, hey, let's do a guest episode, see how it goes, that that episode was going to turn out well. So the life design interview that they talk about here is a conversation with someone who is either doing and living what you're contemplating or has real experience and expertise in the area about which you have questions. He also, they also talk about how people enjoy being helpful, but the way to unlock people being helpful is to make it low risk for them. So just putting myself in that situation, if someone were to really want to know how to start a podcast, I will give them a bunch of time. I'll point them in the right direction. I'll create these resources. Like this is the mic that you got to get. This is where you, this is how you want to do the editing. This is how you connect all the pipes. This is how you publish the episodes. This is who I would work with in order to get a logo, like shortcutting all that stuff for people. Happy to do that. The minute that you're like, hey, let me onto your platform, my shields go up. <laughs> well, okay. So, but they, they would say there's a distinction here, right? Because in the latter, sorry, in the first side of that, where you're giving me all that information, that's not a prototype. Okay. The prototype has to be, you tell me, so the conversational one is you tell me everything you can tell me about actually making one. Yep. Like, tell me about the entire process, what it's like to talk to people. How do you feel when you do it? Um, all those things. But then the, the thing, the thing I want to call here is like, when it's time to build the prototype, you better do that on your own. Don't yes. ask somebody else who is a mentor in some sense to put their name on the line when they don't know if you're actually going to follow through with this Th thing. This is where I think the second example, the one that I came to afterwards actually fits a lot better is you would ask that mentor, like, could we record a fake one? Yes, right? Could I exactly. glean your experience through through that fake one? And that is a lot better because it doesn't put the, the mentor at risk or it doesn't put the, you know, the guard up uh, of the mentor. So yeah, that's a, that's a much better example. I agree. <laughs> Um, okay, so um, did you have anything else? Because uh, I want to move us to the brainstorming idea here because this is where nope, it comes back. go for in. it. Yeah, so it actually, I didn't think about this before. I actually just thought about this right now based on something I said where I said this is the hardest section. It actually now makes sense to me why they may have brought brainstorming into here is because most people in my experience struggle at this stage. So where do they need help brainstorming? In the prototype phase. They mm. really need help brainstorming what these prototypes might be and letting the wild ideas fly, which um, the authors are really, really big on these idea these wild ideas. I like the fact that they they throw out two different um, methods for brainstorming. So they, they give you just the definition of the one, which I don't think does it justice, but group brainstorming, and they give you a little blurb about what group brainstorming is. Then they give you their life design brainstorming, which is frame a good question, warm up, brainstorm, and then name and frame the outcomes. And I think if you, if you want to do brainstorming well, that's a pretty good minimum set of criteria to help people get to a decent amount of ideas. And then when you get into those name and frame outcomes, that actually helps you make them actionable. And, and one of the things I really liked out of this was the sentence that they put. We had 141 ideas. We grouped those into six categories. And based on our focal question, we selected eight killer ideas to prototype. Then we prioritized the list. And our first prototype is boom, because it like mm -hmm. literally hits everything. Like it summarizes what we did. It summarizes why we did it. It summarizes where we're going to go next. And then it summarizes after that one, where we're going to go after that. And I think that is a huge, like valuable sentence, um, 
that, that they threw in the book. Yeah, I like that a lot. And I like the process there where we, we're constantly whittling things down until this is the thing that we're going to test. And then if that doesn't work, we'll build another prototype. Uh, I agree that that part's really, really good. All right. Uh, chapter seven. Oh, Mike. Oh, Mike. <laughs> this is where I stopped liking the book. <laughs> I'm not going to say it wasn't valuable, but this is where I stopped liking the book. Yeah. So this is interesting. Chapter seven is how not to get a job. And the reason I say this is interesting is that I agree with a lot of the principles of what they're saying here, but I feel like there's a whole lot more that is missing. So they talk about the anatomy of the standard job description and how section one is the setup, which are the generic job qualifications. Section two is the skills, always based on the skills of the previous job holder. <laughs> and then section three is what makes a candidate special where the truth sneaks into the job description. And having been in charge of revamping the hiring process at the previous gig, I can tell you that this is pretty much spot on. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny however um i don't know like they have tips for internet job searches and stuff like that and I, I agree that the standard way to go find a job is not probably the the way that you want to do it um, however i don't think that this is completely on the person who is reading the, creating the job description or the person that is reading the job description now obviously you want to take ownership of this if you're from the perspective of I'm trying to find a job, there are things that you can do. But ultimately, I think if you're trying to get a job, you want it to be a good fit and you've got to go into these interviews with the perspective of I'm interviewing them just as much as they're interviewing me. And then the quality of the interview is based on a whole lot more factors than what you have covered in this book so far. Yeah. I mean, when I redid the, the process, we integrated uh, emotional intelligence assessments. We integrated this top grading piece from Brad Smart where you're asking the, the question like, can I interview a previous boss or manager to verify what you're telling me is true? And you don't actually have to follow through with that. So the threat of a reference check, like just the fact that they check, yes, this is part of our standard process. Now they're gonna tell you the truth when you actually get to the interview. The yep, whole yep. process is just stupid. <laughs> it's like we're trying to trick people into getting the job, to, like getting the the offer. And uh, once you get the offer and you get plugged into the the company, um, you know they're looking for somebody who's a right fit. But there's no way you're gonna be able to tell if it's a right fit till you're actually in the culture. You know, the whole thing is, is messed up. These two chapters just felt so out of place to me. Like they, it's not that they're not saying good and interesting things. Like I'll actually probably use a decent amount of this as I advise students and as I counsel students, right? But it just felt so out of place because I was like, wait, how did we go from prototyping to now we're just going to start talking like very, very laser focused on the problems with the job process, the fact that there are these hidden jobs and then like getting into this dream job and networking. And, and I was just like, wait, like what just happened? And then this ties back to the thing I said before, it makes sense now why they've repositioned this book as your work life, because yeah. in a book that's titled your work life, this makes a lot more sense, right? Like, I mean, I can, I can understand. I still don't think it should be in seven and eight. So I'd want to see if it's, if it's moved, but I think it, it just doesn't fit um, in this section for me. I agree with you. Now you kind of mentioned chapter eight. Let's actually just do that real quickly because there's not a whole lot else I want to say from chapter seven. Um, and chapter eight is a separate chapter and that's designing your dream job. 
Mm-hmm. I think there's one thing worth understanding in this chapter from the perspective of somebody who is going to be looking for a job. You don't want to get a job offer. They told a story in here about someone who had all these crazy qualifications and they were trying to get a job offer and they sent out all these different resumes and they got nothing. And they're basically saying, you shouldn't be trying to get someone to give you a job offer. You should be having a whole bunch more conversations. You should be networking in a way, not just like, what can I get from people, but being curious and developing these relationships. And then what that will lead to in the long term is a whole bunch of offers, a whole bunch of options. And then from there, you can pick the one that resonates with you the best or you think is the best fit. And I think that's actually pretty good advice. Yeah. Now, kind of buried in that is the whole idea of like effective networking. They told one story about this guy who moved to this town and just started talking to all these people. And then he goes into the interview for the board and they're like, how do you know that you're going to be able to develop the relationships? You're, you're new here, basically. Um, how, how do we know that you're going to be able to develop the relationships you need to be successful? And he's like, well, I've already done it with three of you because <laughs> three of the five people he had connected with. Like that's, that's this in action, uh, the best version. It's not always going to play out that way, but yeah, just be curious, be nice. Don't be a jerk and, uh, talk to people. Yeah. I think the big thing that stood out in chapter eight for me were networking, like you said. So uh, I'll double down on the idea that helping folks understand that networking isn't slimy, that like everybody needs to know other people and you can do it in a, you know, they, they say the word slimy. That's why I said it, but it's like, you can do it in a way that's off-putting to everyone. But at the same time, everybody knows that building a network is a valuable thing. And like you, when you've seen the benefit of a good network, man, it, it is very, very encouraging. It's like, oh, I need to talk to somebody like, oh, that person might know them. And then next thing you know, two steps later, you're talking to the person and you're like, wow, that was incredible. Like I had no idea that was going to happen. Um, you can use it in a bad way. Like you can use it just to take advantage of people. So don't be that person. But I thought <laughs> there, there are ideas there around like using it to learn and using it to edify both, both situations is, is fantastic. The one, the other one that got me, um, that I liked a lot about this section was the hidden job market. And mm-hmm. I think this is more true, um, than, than we all realize or than people realize. So you think indeed LinkedIn, whatever these are, that these are, this is the job market or the corporate website or whatever it is. And it's amazing to me the number of times that people find their way into an interview or an offer based on just random conversations they had during the week. Or somebody knew somebody who thought you were an interesting person or your background was interesting and they wanted to tell this other person about it. Like I think that is a really, really um, interesting uh, idea. And then they they do another quote here that I, I really, really love. Right. And, and it, t- it demonstrates how to do this. The more I learn about XYZ environmental, like they're, so they're saying a company there, the more I learn about your company and the more people I meet here, the more fascinated it, be- it becomes. I wonder what would be the steps involved in exploring this more or moving forward with this. And that's yep. such a natural way to like, you connect with them because you've just had a bunch of conversations with them. And, and they, they dispel the idea of like, you have this interview and you say, well, what jobs do you have open right now? And it's easy for the person to just be like, none. Mm-hmm. Have a good day, right? Like, you know, and like yep. it ends the conversation where when you say, is there any way for me to get more involved in what you're doing? Is there any way for me to get more involved in uh, in the organization? It plants that seed of like, well, maybe there is, right? Like we were, we've been talking about this position or, you know, we, we had so-and-so just quit. And I wonder if, and, and I really liked that aspect of this. 
again, but it's weird because it feels odd where they put it in the book, but I think it's very valuable. So I have a short story that you'll appreciate. Uh, My brother-in-law is one of the top salespeople for um, a brick and stone company that's local. And he's kind of climbed the ranks uh, since he's been there. And uh, he just started showing up on a, a one Monday, he, he showed up in the office. I forget if he had somebody who uh, had worked there, like a friend who invited him to come and have a conversation, sit down for an interview, whatever. The interview didn't actually happen. So he's just there and he just starts working. And then he shows up every day. And then on Friday, the boss is walking in and he's like going up the stairs and he looks, he's like, you've been here all week. It's like, yeah. It's like, are you on the payroll? No. <laughs> Well, just go talk to this person. <laughs> That's awesome. And he got the job. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I have, a, I, have a, I have a similar similar story. I'm coming out of undergrad. Katie, uh, my wife, is going to go to school in Dallas. Well, okay, so now I got to figure out a, a job in Dallas. Well, we didn't live in Dallas. We live in Pennsylvania. And I um, I went down on an, um, on a, to Dallas on a, on a trip, and there was a company that I wanted to check out because I really, truly just wanted to know what they did. Like I had, I had read about them and I had heard good things from my, one of my advisors. So it's like Friday afternoon, I randomly show up at the company and, you know, I mean, I was, I had a, I had a suit on, I looked, you know, professional and stuff. And I said, hi, you know, my name's so-and-so I've learned about your company through this, through this individual, um, a name that they would actually recognize. And I said, and I just wanted to come and see what you all do. And I'm wondering if anybody's willing to just chat with me about, about the work that you do. <laughs> next thing you know, I'm, I'm having ice cream with them and their ice cream social because every Friday afternoon they had an ice cream social just to <laughs> hang out. So I'm having ice cream with them. I'm learning about the company. Right. And then the next week they sent me an email and they're like, Hey, so, um, you mentioned that you were looking for a position in Dallas. Uh, we're wondering if you'd want to come work with us. And it's like, I ended up not taking the job, but it had like, it was just completely random. And it was like a crazy, <laughs> interesting experience about how well this process might actually work for people. Like I thought it was, was fantastic. So two decent examples of that actually being somewhat true. All right, let's get to (laughs) happiness. Let's choose some happiness here. Okay, cool. So the next chapter, chapter nine is choosing happiness. And, uh, the thing that I took away from this chapter is not to second guess your decisions. There's no right choice. There's only right choosing basically follow the process, which is step one, gather and create options. Step two, narrow down the list. Step three, choose discerningly. And then step four is let go and move on. Uh, They talk about standard step four is agonize over the choice that you made. And that's totally what I naturally do. (laughs) Uh, Should I bought the other one? (laughs) I've got a buddy who's who's doing this right now. And he's like, well, I don't know if I should. And I'm like, come on, man, just let go and move on. And I I use the book immediately. So... (laughs) Yeah, so I think that's useful, but um, I don't think that there's a whole lot that we need to really uh, talk about from this chapter. They talk about grokking, which is interesting. It's not the first place that I heard about this, but grokking is understanding something deeply and completely. Um, and then once you grok something, like disconnect from it, move on is kind of the the thing that they're, they're talking about. Uh, you don't need to know absolutely everything. At least that's my interpretation of it is like there's a certain level of comprehension. And once you reach that for most things, you can disconnect from that now and move on to the next thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you that this, it was a fine chapter, but nothing, nothing stood out to me. So I'm, I'm okay to move to 10. All right. So then the next one, chapter 10 is failure immunity. And, uh, 
that title is maybe a little bit clickbaity. Some of these titles are clickbaity. Like chapter yes. seven, how not to get a job is a very clickbaity. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, failure immunity basically is about being resilient enough or anti-fragile enough to endure whatever failure you happen to um, happen to encounter. So they, they mentioned it. it's impossible to never fail, but you can become immune from it, avoid the negative feelings that come with it. And that I think I uh, agree with. They talk about Grit by Angela Duckworth, which was a phenomenal book that we covered a long time ago for, for Bookworm and uh, was a, something that, that came out of that was this hard things chart that my family started started doing. So uh, I'm very much you know in alignment with the, the core message of this, this chapter. Um, they have this visual of be, do, become, and it's like mm-hmm. this, this circle, which I think is is interesting because, you know, do you become something or do you do something first? It's kind of like a chicken and an egg scenario. It's how, kind of how they describe it. Well, th- there's not any one thing. It, it, there's this this cycle. So you have to do the thing, then you become the the per- type of person that translates into the identity. You know, so it's it's almost like the identity based habits from from Atomic Habits. Um, there's a lot of good stuff in this chapter, to be honest. One other thing is the two kinds of game, the, the finite yep. and the in, uh, infinite games. Um, we did the infinite game by Simon Sinek a while back, but they mentioned another book. I forget the title of it, but I did buy it, and it, it came uh, the other day of the the as the kind of like the the canonical source of the the finite versus infinite games. Yeah, I I actually think it's called finite and infinite games. I I think that's yes. the actual title for it. Yeah, yeah. So I'm looking forward to reading that one, but. Since you already covered one on that for Bookworm, I'm probably not going <laughs> to read it for this. Gotcha. No, I, I really like this section. Um, so the concept that I've always heard when it came around failure is fail forward fast. And and the reason wasn't that you want to, like that you want to fail, like nobody wants to fail, but they cover it really well that failure is a part of life. You accept the fact that failure is a part of life. And as long as you're moving forward and you're learning something from that, okay, great. And then the they're in the startup world. So when I was teaching entrepreneurship education, you know, the idea of failing forward fast allowed you to get through a lot of that, a lot of those hurdles that the longer they took, the more of your bandwidth they, they spun down or the more of your runway they spun down. So if we can learn the mistakes early and we learn from those and go and go forward, that's a benefit. That's a win. So it's a, it's a way to reframe failure in your mind um, from a thing that harms you to a thing that helps you move forward. I, I really, really like the finite and infinite games. Um, so one, so the finite game is one in which we play by the rules in order to win. And when we don't win, then boom, it, it hurts us. You know, it hits us uh, hard. But an infinite game, one in which we play by the rules for the joy of getting to keep playing. So, okay, I failed, but I'm still playing. Like nobody, you know, no, nobody told me I couldn't come back to work. Nobody told me I couldn't, you know, still do whatever it was I wanted to do. Is I just made a mistake, right? Like, okay, I made a mistake. I learned from that and, and I move on. And I really, really like that concept. I think the reframe exercise, the failure reframe exercise is one that I'll add to my, to my action items list because you log your failures, you categorize your failures, and then you identify what I can grow from those. And I think the identify what I can grow from those is the huge step there. That if, if I log them and I categorize them, I still can feel the failure pretty hard. But if I go, oh, this is teaching me this. So for instance, I'm really bad at email. So every time I, I, I flub up on an email and I don't send it back in time, right, if I reframe that and say, what could I learn from this? Oh, I learned from this that if it takes me less than 
30 seconds to respond to an email. I should respond to it right now. Like, don't mm-hmm. wait. Don't say I'm going to respond to it later today because it's only 30 seconds and that's important to that to that person. And it's only 30 seconds. It's not going to take me that much time. When they're longer, sure, push them, push them off. But like, that's an example of where I would where I would use this concept. Um, but I really like this section. I thought because I think failure is a big thing that that hits a lot of people. And this had I had some really practical tips from a life standpoint that that helps you move forward. Yeah, I like this uh, this section a lot. Um, the next one I like even more though. So <laughs> anything else from okay. chapter ten? No, because I'm interested to hear what you say. I did not like this section as much. I did not like eleven <laughs> as much. All right, chapter eleven is building a team, and uh, I won't say that this is the best section in terms of the content, but it definitely got me thinking the most. I have a couple of action items from this one chapter. So the basic idea here is that you live and design your life in collaboration with others. Life design is a communal effort and you should identify the players or the people that are on your team. Those could be supporters who you can count on to care about your life. Players are active participants in your life projects Intimates are your close family and friends. And then there's the team, the people that you're sharing the specifics of your life design with who all track with you on regular intervals. The team's focus is on supporting life design, nothing more, nothing less. And that reminds me a lot of like a mastermind group. I've been a part of both good and bad mastermind groups. The good ones really, when you create that alignment around why are we gathering together and everyone is there to give more than they take then some really awesome stuff can can happen. Um, that kind of leads into one of my action items, but I'm going to pin that for now because there's another piece to this, which is the mentor piece. Um, and the mentor piece is different than people who are going to give me advice. There's a difference between advice and counsel. Advice is like, well, yeah, you could do this, but if you don't want to do it or you're not going to follow it, no skin off my nose. Like a lot of the stuff that people make on the internet is advice. A lot of the things in books are advice, but mentors offer counsel because they're invested in the outcome and they have discernment. They can see the long view and the local view is kind of how they describe it. But a mentor is uh, someone who is committed. There's like that story of the the, um, the chicken who wants to start the restaurant with the pig, he's like, well, we'll sell bacon and eggs. And the pig's like, no, thanks. And he's like, well, why not? <laughs> the pig says to the chicken, you're involved, but I'm committed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Yep. A mentor is committed. <laughs> um, so both of my action items here, number one, identify who are my mentors and like, you can have mentors for different aspects of your life. The second one And the reason that I put this one to the end, I kind of teased it, is I feel like the mentorship and the mastermind piece um, are a little bit related for me in that I want to reboot my community. I shared with you before we hit record Mm -hmm. that I've been making payments on MikeSchmitz.com. It's finally mine. I control the domain. I can point it wherever I want it to go. And so um, I've been doing the faith-based productivity community. I've had the Obsidian University community. Bookworm had its own community a while back. It was too much to have all those in all the different places. And I wasn't doing anybody, I wasn't adding as much value as I could in those places because it was a whole bunch of other places to check. But I'm also a full-time creator. People are asking, like, where can I go to support your work? And I go, well, if you want to support this, go over there. You want to support that, go over there. No, that's too much. So I'm, I'm actually going to consolidate it all into a single community at MikeSchmitz.com. 
So at some point there will be the, the book notes from the, the bookworm community. That's all going to be there. Um, but I also want to build in some of this accountability and even some of this mentorship. Like I would love to facilitate some mastermind groups for people. Not that I'm, you know, exceptional at it, but I feel like I understand the process enough that I could facilitate a pretty awesome mastermind group if we got the right people who were really invested in it and they understood why they were there. So I want to be able to, to set that stuff up and help other people with that. And there will be lots of, um, lots of details uh, to be coming with that. But uh, I've reached the point, uh, as we record this anyways, that I'm going to do this now. It's just what exactly is this going to look like? Nice. Nice. So um, who, as you're thinking through that, right, and I should say it, who, do you have supporters, players in mind for that? Like, do you have people in mind as you develop those things? You don't have to tell who they are, but do you have people in mind for those? Um, not really, uh, partly because I feel like they're different than they would have been six months ago. (laughs) So everything has kind of been in a state of flux for me and, uh, I need to kind of nail this down. That's a good, a good idea to, to figure that stuff out. Um, so that's actually the, the action item is to start planning my community, but, um, that will be a piece of it is like, who's there. Cause they've been separate. They've been a handful of people who are like, I want to help with this or whatever I can do, you know, that sort of thing. And I really appreciate that. And I want to plug those people in. Um, but I also need to figure out kind of the characteristics of the community, which I thought this was sort of, uh, interesting from this section too. They talk about compu- community as being invested in one another's lives. So characteristics of community, you've got a kindred purpose. You have an explicit mission. I think anyone who's followed me for any length of time knows that my thing is kind of values driven productivity you know, faith would be another way to say it, but really it's just belief that if you design your life the right way and you do the right things, you're going to get the right results. Um, a growth mindset, constantly learning, uh, constantly trying to, trying to get better and then meet regularly, share common ground, have the right intention and purpose, which again is like, in my opinion, give more than you, you take, you add all that stuff together. You could create a pretty awesome, uh, community with some pretty cool people in it. And so that's, uh, that's going to be my next project. <laughs> nice. Nice. So my encouragement to you would be, what would you, what should you prototype for that project? <laughs> <laughs> well, the prototype is going to be setting up the new community in a separate instance of circle. I know circle is the one that I want to use okay. and then start bringing things over. And the first thing that needs to be brought over is all of the, my book notes. Yeah. Um, so in the meantime, what people can do, I've kind of revamped my newsletter lately and I've been sharing a different book note, a PDF every single week. So, um, the way to sign up for that, I believe is to go to obsidianuniversity.com. But again, eventually that'll be mikeschmitz.com. Uh, and then I'll, I'll share that stuff, but then the community is going to have like the archive with all the, all that stuff in there. So I guess if I would have to pick one single step, like where do I go from here? It's set up that community. And then bring over all those those book notes because that's going to be the majority of the the time for me to export all that stuff and bring it all over. I mean, there's a whole lot more to do, all the courses and all that kind of stuff too. But that's step one. Yeah. Okay. Good. It does. Um, does MikeSchmitz.com right now have a place for people to like tell you their 
interested or what they'd want or anything like that <laughs> give you any feedback or is that too is that too far down the road uh it doesn't um you can give me an action item right now i guess before this goes live turning that into like a landing page so people can say yeah i'm interested in this when it launches i should i should definitely do that so yeah. i just think that's a that's a very low way like a low risk and or prototype to be <laughs> like oh there are actually people interested in this right like you know yeah yeah because uh, i think you're gonna get good feedback from there so Cool. Yeah. I'll, I'll add that as an action item to, I'll, I'm committing right now. That link will be in the show notes. <laughs> nice. All right. So my, my key takeaway with building a team, um, was this idea of council, which you, you covered very, very well. Um, I, I don't really think I got, um, a ton more out of this. I told you I wasn't super, uh, interested in this section. Uh, not that a team's not important and not that I don't really, really value a team. Cause I do. Um, I think I just got to the point, um, during, uh, you know, at, at this book where it was kind of like, okay, like, I get it. And, and I was ready to move on. So we can move on to conclusion and then style and rating and wrap it up. All right. Sounds good. So the conclusion is called a well-designed life and a couple of key ideas from here. First balance happens over time, which I think is really important because everyone mm-hmm. wants to lead a quote unquote balanced life. Uh, I actually think with the 12 week year, the whole idea of intentional imbalance is better, but Overall, they're right. What you want over a long period of time is balance. In yeah. you know, moment to moment, you're not necessarily balanced. You're, you're going all in with something or other, but there's constantly these ebbs and flows. Well, and, and I would say, yeah, like I would say in, in, with the intentional imbalance, informed imbalance is okay, right? Like if you can, yep. you can cognitively process that like, oh, this season of my life will be very stressful or very heavy in this section, but I can see the end of that and it's not going to be, yep. it's not going to be forever. So that makes sense. Exactly. Exactly. The other thing they talk about is personal practices, which reminded me of uh, routines. And specifically, my morning routine, I feel like, needs a uh, a reboot, <laughs> shall we say. Not that there's a whole bunch of stuff that needs to be changed with it, but I really need to reconsider my morning routine and uh, probably make a few adjustments to that. So that's another action item that I had was to examine my uh, my morning routine, possibly my evening routine too, but the morning routine is the one that I know yeah. uh, could benefit from some TLC. Yeah, I think um, two two ideas came out of this one. Um, this conclusion for me is one that basically it's a process. So accept the process, acknowledge the process, and dive into the process, and just keep iterating on this process and keep iterating on this process. So one of the things I really value about the way the authors did this book is the design principles are, you know integrated into this book they are weaved in tightly into this book and i and i like that i appreciated that about that because it's just such a natural fit but we just don't often think about it from a life standpoint from a work standpoint we think about it or at least for me i think about it from like product design system design um, those kind of things the second one is basically they acknowledge that this is a how book this is not a what or why book. And I really appreciate that <laughs> yeah. about that. So, they, I mean, they make the quote, in life design, we only take on uh, questions of how to design your life, what life you should live, or why one life is better than others. And I think that is a very, very valuable statement and a very honest statement for them to make. And I really like that they made it. It almost like put a pretty bow at the end of the book that said, okay, like this all just sits so much better with me. Um, you know, now that, now that we're at the end. So I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I agree. Great way to end the book. Um, let's go to action items. So I've got five of them. I was going to say, uh, you were just rattling them off there, man. Like you're all kind (laughs) of action items on this. 
Yeah. Well, the first one I think might actually already be done. Check out a designing your life workshop. I looked up the website for this. They're super expensive and I don't think I'm going to go anywhere and do one of these anytime soon. Um, second one is to create those engagement, energy, and flow mind maps. I think that might be a long-term one and I'll add to those over time, but I want to start those. Number three, make a list of my mentors. Number four, start planning my community and create a landing page before the episode goes live. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the last one is to examine my morning routine. What do you got? Yeah. Well, so um, one comment on, on yours. Uh, this is a big part of what we do. I told you we do a, a similar, but it's actually the more now that I've read, you know, fully through the book, um, our, our workshop is very different. It just uses a couple concepts, um, similar concepts from what they do. Um, but the energy and the flow maps and, and those type of things, you'll get a lot of value out of those. That's worth your time. I understand it may not be a priority in the next week or two, but um, you'll get a lot of uh, a lot of value out of those. Uh, the other thing is awesome. the mentor the mentor map and just remembering who all is in your network and what what it sounds it sounds so transactional, but like what value they could bring to the things you're thinking about or the things you're working through. Those are those are really valuable. Uh, my action items. So I want to identify the gravity and the anchor problems in my life. And I want to try to categorize those because there are these things that, that at times kind of frustrate me. And I, and I kind of think, wow, well, like I want to work on that. I want to fix that. I want to do that thing. And I've never, ever thought about what well, are, is it fixable or is it an action or is or it is an anchor problem where the way I've been approaching it is just the wrong way to approach it. And I need to really go through a brainstorm session on how I might be able to approach that. Um, and, and I think that would be a very valuable activity for me. So I want to think through those, nagging things and what are they maybe <laughs> three of them if i if i can find three of them or whatever and think through what kind of problem they are and try to classify those the next one would be to think about my last three-ish failures right and say and i want to do that reframe exercise that failure reframe exercise and say okay this was the failure can i categorize it into a type of failure and then what did i learn from it or what can i do to progress uh forward in that failure so uh, i think those those two would be valuable right now for me nice all right, style and rating. And uh, I picked this one, so I'll go first. Uh, I think the style is very approachable. I feel like they did a great job of condensing down the class. The book itself is well-designed. It's very visual. You mentioned at the beginning the call-outs with the wrong mindsets and the reframes. That's really helpful. There's a lot of exercises built in. There's short summaries at the end of each chapter. It's uh, it's very well done for someone who is coming into this topic and they're trying to grok the concept, to borrow one of their terms. Uh, it's written in a way that you can do that very easily, I feel. Because it's so visual, because there's so many examples and images and exercises, it's pretty easy to get through the meat of the book. Uh, I don't think you're probably getting the majority of the benefit until you go through with the exercises. However, I don't really want to go through <laughs> the exercises. Yep. Uh, I feel like I understand the concepts of them and I've got my own versions of these already. So actually the the weird thing about this is I came into this kind of feeling like, what can they teach me about designing my life? And I walk away thinking like, I need to write a version of this book. <laughs> ah, nice, nice. Action I don't item. have the, I don't have the credentials. You know, I, I'm, I'm not teaching a Stanford class, but there's a lot of the things that they're talking about. And I'm just like, mm, that's not the best way to do that. So 
I guess I got to get over my own limiting beliefs because I, I struggle with that a lot. It's like, well, who am I to actually talk about this stuff? I'll let Bill Burnett and Dave Evans do it because they worked at Apple and they're Stanford teachers. But I don't know. I mean, there's stuff that I like here. There's stuff I don't like here. And there's probably people like me who could who would resonate more with my take on this. I kind of had the same thing after reading Hero on a Mission. It's like, oh, some good stuff here. It's not how I would do it. That's kind of what this reminds me of. Um, so I do like the book. I do think I would recommend it. Uh, I think I'll give it four stars. I don't think it's the right thing, the right revolutionary thing for me. Like if I were to go through and do all these exercises, I don't think those exact exercises are the thing that's going to unlock things for me. However, they're definitely in the same vein as uh, a lot of like the life theme stuff that I really am, am passionate about. So I like the concept. I like that this book exists. I think it's a great starting point. It's not the place that I would end with uh, a lot of this stuff. But if you're coming into this concept, um, I think it's a, it's a good one to pick up. Yeah. Um, so I'll, you know, put the, put the end first, uh, four stars as well. So that's exactly what I had in my head because I think there's a lot of really good value in here. I think the fundamental concepts that you can get out of this book or you can glean from this book are really, really valuable and they'll, they'll change the way you think, especially if you've never thought about this. I can, similar to you, some of the exercises I can give and take, right? Some of them I think are, are more valuable than others. I think if you have nowhere to start, this is a great way to start doing these things. But I also think that you might run into some trouble if you're not doing it with a facilitator, you're not doing it with someone with experience. So I think there, there may need to be a little bit more. And as you said, the bar between read the book and do the workshop, I mean, it's big, like the gap between there, because the, the workshop is expensive. I mean, they, they very much have a consulting business out of this, um, uh, that, that is, is, uh, very lucrative, if you will. So, or at least it seems that way. I, I don't know if it is or not, but it seems that way. They're definitely making more money off of their workshops than I'm making off the life theme cohort. Let's <laughs> yeah. just say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, then we get to the, the dis, um, dysfunctional beliefs and the reframes. And I think revisiting those every so often is, would be a really valuable thing. So I, I think there's a lot of value contained in this book. I would totally pull out or re rework chapter seven and eight. Um, I just thought they, they felt odd. Um, so I would go, um, I'd go four, four out of five. Awesome. All right, let's put designing your life on the shelf. What's next? So I get to pick the next book now that I'm official, uh, which is fun. And uh, <laughs> uh, I want to I wanna do Learn Like a Pro by Barbara Oakley and Olav, and I think it's Shue is how you say his, say his last name, Olav Shue. So um, Learn Like a Pro, and we're going to get some strategies on how to learn, effective strategies to learn. Um, and I think it's just going to be a really practical, tangible book for folks that are always interested in learning something new. Uh, so I think it's going to be an exciting read. It's a little bit of a shorter read, um, which um, for some of you, you'll be very happy about that. Um, but uh, I, I think it's going to be a, a really valuable book. So that's what we're going to do next. Nice. All right. And then the one uh, after that, uh, I'm going to pick based on a, a recommendation, and that is uh, Influence by Robert Cialdini. There's an updated version of this. I read this a while back, and this is one of those books that I feel maybe gets a bad rap because the sleazy internet marketer people have uh, taken this too far. <laughs> okay. uh, the other thing that kind of 
uh, stands out to me from that vein is like the Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. Like I know a lot of people who really don't understand the concept of that book and they refer to that as like, oh, well, that's a manipulative book. And I don't think it's that's necessarily true. It's one of the better books that I've, I've read, to be honest. So um, I read Influence a long time ago. To be honest, it was before Bookworm and I don't remember anything about it. <laughs> okay. So uh, I'm looking forward to going back through this one. And the same person who recommended this actually also recommended the one that you had picked, which is Learn Like a Pro. And you brought this one up to me without knowing that this was also a recommendation by Mark. So Mark, you get a twofer on the next uh, yeah. next couple books from your recommendations. So thanks for sending those in. Yeah, Mike, just so the listeners know, are we doing the updated version, the newer publication yep. version? Yep. Okay. Let's do the new one. Okay. Um, I have no idea what is updated about it, but that's the one that I, I just ordered today. It's the, the updated right. version. Fantastic. Um, and then, so now that I'm official, I guess we get to do gap books, right? Which there's always, <laughs> there's always a gap book. I don't know if Mike has one or not. I don't, um, but I am reading one, uh, it's called triumph of the lamb and it's actually for a Bible study that I'm leading on Fridays. So, um, it's a, it's a fun book. It's a kind of a crazy book, um, in terms of introducing new concepts to me, but, but that's the gap book that I'm reading, uh, in between at this time. Yeah, so I do actually have one that I'm going to start reading today. Uh, it's one that was recommended to me a long time ago by my friend Ernie. And uh, when I was asking people what should I do with these communities, uh, basically the advice that I got was, you're crazy if you don't consolidate it under your own name. That's what everybody wants to do. Uh, the whole idea behind story brand for like big companies and brands is that they want to be more personal. Why would you not just lean into like who you are? <laughs> That's why people follow you. So um, this book I had on my bookshelf and feels like the perfect complement to the whole action item was setting up the community and what's MikeSchmitz.com going to look like. And that is You Are the Brand by Mike Kim. Uh, and I honestly don't know anything about this book other than it's been recommended to me and seemed to... Uh, potentially contain some solutions to problems that I'm re wrestling with. So I'm going to try and read that one before uh, we before learn like a pro. Okay. All right. So thanks everyone for listening along. Um, as I mentioned, and Corey uh, pressured me to do, I'll set up the landing page for the, uh, the community. And if you sign up for that, that'll get you on the email list. And in the meantime, you can get my, my book notes that way. But uh, if you are reading along with us, please pick up Learn Like a Pro by Barbara Oakley and Olav Shue, and we will talk to you in a couple of weeks.